love one another, but not to love the world. And um, there's a lot of worldly things that need to be avoided, not just perhaps the things we think of when we think about the world. So it leads him into a discussion in verse 18 of one of the real dangers that he's warning about. He's already been laying a lot of groundwork on this one, and now he just kind of comes right out with it. So I think uh, it would be good if we read to chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Children, it is the last hour, and just just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Well, there's certainly a number of um, expressions and statements in this uh, section that are challenging to us. He says it's the last hour. Now, that's a bit of a problem, don't you think? I think this letter was written more than an hour ago. Yeah, exactly. More than an hour ago. So, how can he say it's the last hour? Good question, don't you think? <laughs> and there's not perhaps the uh, finest answer you'd ever want to think about. But he's saying it's the last hour because of the presence of these antichrists, because of the crisis that was upon them because of these false teachers. And I am understanding the last hour to imply a decisive moment. I'm going to use an analogy. This is the best thing I can come up with to kind of explain the idea that I think he's trying to give. What would happen if you went toward a cliff and then just as you got to the edge of it, you stopped and you walked right along the cliff? How close are you to falling off? Just a step. But you can actually go for a long time just along the edge without falling off. It seems to me that this is a last hour time. This is a decisive moment. And and things are on the edge. Not that, you know, chronologically there can't be other hours or even other last hours. But that this is a decisive moment This is a crisis moment. They're on the edge of the cliff. It's the last hour. I realize that that's not as satisfying an explanation as uh, we might like. I'm looking for any other that you would like. 
to offer. Uh, that would uh, be uh, helpful, but that's that's the best one I know of. So, um, he says, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Now, when you think of Antichrist, I want you to think about what that word means. Break it down, anti and Christ. Anti means... Not against. against and Christ means anointed one. These are the antichrists. I don't think that's what they said about themselves. I think they would have probably called themselves the anointed ones. I think he's talking about the Gnostics or at least some pre-Gnostic group that thought of themselves as having a special anointing, not the way he sees it. They're actually the anti-Christs. And one of the things that you see in John is a very clear line of division between truth and error. You know, he's, he's not, uh, he doesn't mince any words. He doesn't say, you know, these guys are really good people, they're just a little off base, you know, but we still love them and we support them in their work, you know, I'm sure they'll go to heaven too, you know, etc., etc. He calls a spade a spade. They're antichrists. Uh, John operates on the basis of absolutes, on the basis of truth and error, black and white, light and darkness, things like that. And what you believe really matters. So it's not just Antichrist, though. It's Antichrists. You know, this, 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 is, a, this is a group. There are many of them. It was we, What you heard was only in part true. Antichrist is coming. No, actually, Antichrists are here. <laughs> And uh, now we know some things about them in verse 19. What do we know about them? They went out from us. Yes, which means they were of us, of us among us, and then they left. left. So apparently, these were maybe like members in churches that John's writing to. They they were of us. You know, they went out from us anyway. But, but he said, but they weren't really of us. Now, how can you go out from us, but not really be of us? What if you're a wolf wearing sheep's clothing, and you're hanging out with the flock? You appear to be of, but you're not really. So exactly. when you go out, it come, becomes obvious. Exactly. That's what he's saying. Oh, yeah, they may have been members in good standing. Oh, who knows? They may have been preachers or elders or whatever. But the truth is they were wolves in sheep's clothing. And when they left, that's when it really showed up. You know, that's when you could really tell, oh, that's their true colors. That's, uh, in fact, maybe it was a blessing when they left. You know, it's not always so bad when people leave. It may be a, it may be a help. You know, because if, if Antichrist leave, it purifies the flock. It, it's less dangerous. So, yeah, yeah, nice to see you too. Um, so, so really, you know, you can see the hand of God in this. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 11. Do you know that passage um, where he talks about the problems with the Lord's Supper? They were fighting and you know, dividing into factions and things like that. And he says in verse 19, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. I mean, the factions, the divisions, help to show who's who. You know, among God's people, it's been very common that every generation or so, 
maybe a little bit more, there's kind of a major split among brethren. You know, I mean, I think in, in our group, you know, of, of you guys, we would have seen, even though before any of our time, there was kind of a split over sponsoring church arrangements, church-sponsored benevolence, uh, general benevolence, and entertainment, recreation, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, there have been other maybe less major splits since then among some brethren, and even in churches you'll see that. You'll see brethren dividing over this or that or whatever. And it's a, it's a sad thing, you know, you hate seeing that. But a lot of times what it does is it purifies the body. It kind of shows who really is loyal to the Lord and who is just kind of loyal to the group and didn't really care so much about doing it the way God says. So that's what he says about the divisions in Corinth, and that seems to be the case here. You know, in a way, they went out so that we could all tell they weren't of it. It kind of neutralized their influence when they did that. So there are probably people that look like backsliders that the truth is they never were converted in the first place. Now, you may not know that. John's inspired, so he knows that. But that's probably the truth. I mean, there's probably people who leave a church and the truth is they really never were serving the Lord. Now, you know, can we turn this into a universal rule? That everybody who ever leaves a church never was really a part of us in the first place. I don't think so. I don't think we can say that. I don't, I don't think he's saying that here. These were, that doesn't mean everybody is. Is it possible for somebody to be converted and then just fall away? Well, the Bible says that over and over again. So the text does not deal with the question, can somebody be genuinely converted and then fall away? You know, yes, I think other passages say they can. This just says these guys weren't. And this really unmasked them when they left us. Now, you remember that John keeps talking a lot about loving one another. That may be part of the point. These false teachers didn't show much love because they split off of them. They didn't even care to stay with them. So they showed they didn't love. All right, comments and questions on 18 and 19. All right, look at 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Now, I think this is a play on the wording of the Antichrists. These guys all have the chrism, would be the, the word, English word even, though that's not, we, what if we ever use the word chrism? But that would be an anointing, uh, you know, so it gets that idea of the Christ idea. Um, and and uh, I suspect that the false teachers were claiming that they had the real anointing. They were the religious elite. You guys need the anointing. If you only had the anointing, well, John says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you all know. Of course, you know, so, so he's using kind of an odd term. It's not every place in the Bible that talks about, you know, we've got an anointing. You know, and he's going to come down in 27 and say, uh, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. And, you know, the anointing teaches you about all things. And it's like, what? You know, where in the Bible does he talk about the anointing doing all of this? Well, I think he's using that term because it really responds to these false teachers. So what is the anointing that we have? What's he talking about? 
Not so easy to tell, is it? There's two big schools of thought. One would be anointing of the Holy Spirit in a, at least a semi-miraculous way. Yeah, a lot of people would say the anointing is you have the Holy Spirit, or something related to that. The Holy Spirit anoints you, or whatever. You know what the other big view is? Oh, you look like you're doing that. Mm, thinking. Well, look at what he says about it. You know, you have an anointing, and you all know... And in 27, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. What does that sound like, the anointing is? The Holy Spirit. Well, that's what we were saying, the Holy Spirit. But I think there's something else that it sounds like even more. <clears throat> Look at 2.14. What abides in them? The Word of God. Yeah, look at Second John 2. For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. I wouldn't be dogmatic about this. I am not totally against the possibility this could be the Holy Spirit. But I really think that the Holy Spirit hasn't even been mentioned in this letter so far. I think it's more likely he's talking about the truth or the gospel or the message. And, and, and you know, he's saying you have what you need. You've got the resources. You have the anointing. You've got the teaching. You've got the understanding. And uh, all of you know. See, I think these Gnostics were elitist. You know, we have this special edge. We have this special super duper, you know, kind of you know, hidden understanding, hidden meaning, hidden insight, and ordinary Christians, they just, they can't match us. They, 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 they don't have the anointing. He said, you've all got the anointing. All of you know. You don't, they have not got anything on you. Um, knowledge of the truth is not the privilege of a select few or some spiritual elite. All of God's people can know the truth. So they don't have a monopoly on, on insight and understanding, no matter how superior they regard themselves. Like I say, if you wanted to take the anointing of the Holy Spirit, I don't think that's ridiculous. There would be another passage or two you might even be able to look at in Paul's writing that might lead in that direction. But I really think it's a little bit simpler and more straightforward if he's really meaning the anointing is the message of the truth they've received. Thoughts and comments about that? Look at 21. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. I really appreciate John's basic, simple, powerful logic. Truth and error are total opposites. You know, it's absolutely impossible to reconcile truth and error. Some people today don't see that no lie is of the truth. They would say, well, it may not be truth for you, but it may be truth for him. You know, all truth is relative. If to you two plus two is five, then it's five for you. <laughs> Try that on your math teacher. Have you ever tried that before, uh, Caleb? 
No, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> you can try it. Tell them you're postmodern and you believe that 2 plus 2 is 5 for you and see what they do. Don't think they'll buy it. You know, there's some things in life that actually have to work. You know, they have to have that function. And uh, for that, some accuracy is actually helpful. Um, you know, in philosophy and psychology and sociology and history and some of those disciplines, it doesn't matter if it works or not. So they can just kind of make up anything and say, that's truth. But he says there is no lie that's of the truth. We have no business tolerating falsehood. You know, the false teachers didn't just have a different perspective on truth. Uh, they were wrong. You know, so here's what protects us from false teachers. No lie is of the truth. Mark it down. If it's a lie, it's not the truth. Okay? Um, who is the liar? There is a liar, all right. Uh, the one that denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. Now, the Gnostics generally taught that the Christ came to dwell in Jesus when he was baptized, but the Christ left Jesus before he, he died, before he was crucified. Because they would say you can't kill God. And so the Christ had to leave him. They would never identify the Christ as actually being Jesus. He just was in Jesus. Because they would say that matter is inherently evil. And so the Christ could never actually, you know, be a man. He just dwelt in Jesus for a while. And what he's saying, the liar denies that Jesus is the Christ. They denied that Jesus is the Christ. They just said Christ lived in him for a while. So they're the liar. They're the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And it's a package deal. You can't have the Father and deny the Son. You know, the Father's revealed by the Son, and confessing the Son gives you access to the Father. So, if you're going to believe in the Father and belong to the Father, you've got to follow the Son. Comments and questions through 23. historical information, we can see from what he writes kind of some hints. But he never really just spells it out. But we do know a lot from writings in the second century and things like that. Okay, which is how we know that this, that the Gnostic ideas are the ideas that he's trying to... Yes, yes. Most people, probably most current scholars would say these were not full-blown Gnostic ideas, but kind of proto-Gnostic or okay. pre-Gnostic, kind of what gave rise to Gnosticism. Okay. Um, I, I don't know about all that, but but it does certainly seem like this is these dealing with the kind of things that the Gnostics later taught. Most everybody agrees with at least that general idea on First John. That's not particularly controversial. He's the same guys who taught that... Um, it wasn't Jesus who was even crucified on the cross, but it was like a last-minute switcheroo, and it was actually Judas Iscariot. No, I don't think so. Group. Yeah, I think that's a different group. I've never heard that one. Oh, okay. I thought Islam taught that. There, there's something like that, that it was... Yeah. Maybe. Are there Gnostics today? Well, I don't think... I, I don't know if there's a group that's called Gnostics. There are people who believe these teachings... For example, um, if I'm not mistaken, the Oneness Pentecostals, like the apostolic groups, if they have apostolic in their name, or the United Pentecostal Church, I believe they teach 
essentially the same thing. That Jesus died as a mere man, that deity had left him before he died. Because they teach that there's only one person in the Godhead. They would say the Father is Jesus, the Son is Jesus, the Holy Spirit is Jesus. So if they had Jesus as God dying on the cross, that would have killed their whole God. <laughs> there's nothing besides <laughs> Jesus. And so they, they have a very similar view of the Gnostics as far as that's concerned. There are people who also would argue that the sins of the body don't affect the soul. Not, this, not the Pentecostals necessarily. But there would be some other groups. Even some of the radical Baptists in some cases would argue that, you know, I'm still pure even though my body does wrong. Uh, and that was kind of their other thing that he keeps insisting that you have to actually live right and walk in the light. Since they thought of matter as being evil and the spirit as being pure, then what your body did didn't really affect your spirit. So they would think, I'm, I'm trying to think what's the bottom line and why would you want to believe that that allows you to do sinful things? They wouldn't look down on that? Yes, but I'll tell you, I think the bigger draw was it was more in line with Greek philosophy and it had this kind of elitist, special, you know, kind of hidden... Uh, you know, we know something other people don't know kind of a thing. So prideful. Yes, I think very much so. I think, and it was very Greek. I mean, that's very the Greek idea. Matter's evil. Uh, you know, Plato, you know, we're just really the shadows on the cave wall anyway. It's the spirit that's really uh, the reality and all that kind of stuff. I don't even understand that stuff. Philosophy is not my bag, but that's the idea. Alright, look at 24. He says, as for you, you know, he returns to write to them directly. Let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also will abide in the Son and the Father. So, you got to return to the fundamental principles that you had in the beginning. Novelty is a snare. You know, I mean... A lot of times people like any newfangled wang. Well, there's no benefit in that. Go back to what you heard from the beginning. The apostolic teaching is the permanent content of our faith. And so the watchword is back to Jesus, back to the apostles, back to the truth, back to the teaching. We're not trying to advance. We're trying to go right back to where it all began. The truth also then has to abide in us. It's not enough to hear and agree with the message. It needs to live in us. We need to make the word real to us. Continually call it to mind. Let it affect us. Keep studying it. Um, so that's the antidote. You know, trying to have the word in us. That's what really helps us. And then he says that this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. So that, that's, what he, that, that's what we have to look forward to. But there's these people who are trying to deceive them, trying to lead them astray, draw them away. And he's worried about the, that. 
It's always worried about that hurting their ability to have the promise. And But again he says, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true, it's not a lie, and so forth. They've got it already. They do, should not be listening to somebody who comes along with some newfangled, special, super-duper teaching that nobody else has figured out. The test of the true anointing, are you faithful to what was taught from the beginning? You know, John goes back and says that foundational message is the standard. That's what we go by. And nobody else has anything else to offer. You know what you need to. You've got the anointing. And so... That's where these false teachers failed. It wasn't according to the teaching they had from the beginning. That's what we do. People come along with new revelations, newfangled ideas. Back to the book. What does it say? You know, we've got to test everything by the scriptures. Comments? No lie is of the truth. Going back to verse 21 reminds me of the contrast between light and darkness as well. It's same, the same kind of parallel being laid out. There's not any truth in a lie. There's not any lie in a truth in, in light and darkness in the same way. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Other thoughts? Okay, uh, 28 and 29 are kind of transition verses. I'm going to want to read those. <clears throat> now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So, um, he kind of summarizes, you know, abide in him. You know, that's what he's been saying. So that we can have confidence when he comes and not shrink back in shame. If we abide in the Lord, then we have nothing to be ashamed of or afraid of when he comes back. But to do that, we have to practice righteousness. You know, children resemble their father. If he is righteous, then we have to practice righteousness. That's a part of, you know, being like he is. And that's what it takes to, you know, be right with him and to be saved by him. And that transitions us into the next section that's really going to ultimately say that we need to practice righteousness and not practice sin if we want to have a relationship with God. So I would take 28 and 29 as kind of the transition to this next part of the book. Anything you want to say about chapter 2, then? Alright, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 